This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, flight service is going to be a changing. And a group is working to SDC a new lower-cost autopilot option. Also, we can do a partnership with UND to study the traffic pattern. And helicopters spread holiday good cheer across the country. All right, Dave, you ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Okay, David, we'll get right into it. Um, let's talk about this UND study. This is pretty exciting. Um, this is the Air Safety Institute uh-huh. and uh, University of North Dakota. They've collaborated on this uh, study now. To Now, it's a, known by a bunch of different names. Uh, we'll call it just the stabilized approach pattern. Sort of a circular approach pattern. Yeah, sort of circular. Um, and this is really cool. Um, you know, most pilots today, they fly more or less a rectangle, right? Yeah, that's, how, right. We were, that's how we were taught back in the day. Yeah, rectangular course, right? Exactly. Yeah, and this is in the traffic pattern. And so, you know, you fly your downwind, you do a 30-degree bank turn or whatever yeah. to uh, to base, and then, you know, 30 degrees of bank to final, and that's how you do it. And you're set up, and you're on final now, but there are problems with that approach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know we have a, a huge issue with um, stall spin and overshooting final. Low altitude and, stall spin, and when you're yeah. overshooting and trying to get back, and you've just had that quartering tailwind yeah. on the downwind. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. And so... Um, a potential solution to that, we don't know, that's why it's a study, but a potential solution is this more circular approach to it. Sort of a constant turn, yeah. a, a twenty between 20 and 30 degrees, on and off, on and off. Yeah. Now, if this sounds familiar, uh, the military does this. I know the Navy and I think maybe the Air Force. They, I mean, this is what they do all the time. That's this how they standard. taught their folks to fly. Yeah. Um, and if you've gone through commercial training, you know, the 180-degree um, circle and approach to landing. Yeah. Same thing. Um, the basic idea is uh, about a beam the numbers. Really, it's a key position. It could be past uh-huh. um, the runway or whatever. Uh, you configure the airplane completely. So none of this, like, you know, flaps at every leg of the pattern or anything like that. It's okay. like you go, you want to go full flaps, like let's call it power to 1500 and a 172. Yep. And uh, you start a turn. And you're and you're doing the turn. You're keeping your eyes on the the landing spot. Yep. And it's a constant, a little bit of a, a little bit of a turn, a little bit of a level off, a little bit of a turn. But you're never going at a at a complete ninety. You're not you're not cutting it. Yeah, yeah. You're not doing these square corners. 
There's a little bit of uh, figuring out some parameters ahead of time for every airplane, right. you know, as far as target speed and stuff, just like we do now. Right. But the the thought is the the hypothesis is that that those turns stop, turn stop, actually destabilize the airplane. Well, you can forget what you're doing. Yeah. Or you can get distracted. Yeah. So there are some issues with that. Um, but if we're going to take a dogfight approach to this. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. We, uh, one, one good reason to keep that stuff squared up is at an uncontrolled field, mm-hmm. you've got a moment or two to look out the right side if you're landing to your left and make sure that that final approach path is clear of other traffic. Yeah. And if you're doing that, that constant banking turn, that right wing, if on a low wing plane, that right wing will be a little bit higher, mm-hmm. so it might block the path. And on a on a high wing plane, I guess your left wing will be lower, so you might not have that same issue. Yeah, but uh, that's one yin versus yang of of looking at it. Yeah, that's I suppose that's true. I think about it. Um you know, I definitely do the traffic look thing. That was great. You know, it's like pounding into my head. That's how we learned. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, so, yes, I, I agree. I think that it could be potentially hard to see traffic. Although, I will say, I mean, we're not talking like yanking a bank. I mean, you're not doing like 60-degree right. turns or anything. Well, you couldn't do that because you'd have too low of an airspeed and you're, because of your just stall speed. Yeah. And that's really what happens right now anyway. Yeah. That's what's happening to uh, to cause a lot of these lower altitude stall spin accidents. Yeah. And so I think the, the thinking is that you know, whereas let's say you, you're uh, too close to the runway when uh-huh. you start your downwind, right. uh, your base turn. And so then you know you have to square it off. Right. And all of a sudden it's like you're already on. I, and I've, I've been with students where it's like this and heck, I've probably done it with a tailwind on base. It's like you're already at the extended center line. You haven't even started turning final yet. And now you're getting blown further away. Yeah. And, and so, so what do you do? Yeah. Most people, they just, you know, they crank it around and they get into trouble because if you pull it Dude. all. It's like you're getting really close to the stall. That's right, because you're already at a a low speed, low altitude, and uh, the stalling speed is is definitely something to consider, and a lot of people might forget that. Yeah, yeah, and so with the turn, the hope is that because you're consistently turning, when you're already in a turn, it's easier to tighten up the turn Uh than it is to maybe, you know... Now, Start one, use rudder coordination, everything like that. But now you've got to add a little power when necessary. And I think that's the key that a lot of people, a lot of pilots might not do. The ones that are definitely getting in trouble yeah. have not been taught that, I, I'm guessing. And hmm. I, some of the comments that I've seen on, on stories um, that have referred to this particular st- story on, and yeah. a concept by AOPA and uh, UND is, uh, is that you really need to squeeze on a little bit of power. You want to keep mm. your speed up. Mm-hmm. Don't just turn and, and, and be a, a passive part yeah. of the operation. Yeah, so the, the way this is working right now is um, UND, they do a multi-phased study approach. And so, you know, they look at it from, um, from an SM safety management um, system standpoint, SMS. Uh, they look at that. They look at, you know, and then they try it with a little test group with their CFIs. Right. And, okay. Can, is this, uh, can we test this hypothesis properly? And so right now, actually they're in the study process where it's, it's school wide. I don't think they're using it every lesson. Um, but I think they're using it on specific lessons and they're trying to basically find out they're using really cool technology to track eye movement. Oh, neat. Um, like an eye track study. Yeah. Like, like, like folks have done for newspapers and magazines. Yeah. Like yeah. Articles. Yeah. And so they're trying to see basically, are students able to have less workload because their eyes maybe aren't moving as fast oh, or aren't darting you. around? And so um, not only, you know, are they on target more often, right? Um, but is it easier for them to do that? So it's so. less less uh, workload in the cockpit yeah. at, a, in, at a time where workload is normally high. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And now the University of North Dakota, they have um, they're well known for their aviation program, and they've got yeah. a variety of aircraft there. Yeah, and so they've got a, a lot of students for their test group. Yeah, it's a huge program. It's really just an incredible place. And our Air Safety Institute is is very hopeful that these results are positive. Yeah, you know, we'll and, see. It's good. I mean, they have an open mind. Um, you know, George Perry, who runs ASI, he's, of course, former Navy pilot. Um, and so exactly. for him, he did it all the time. And I know I, the summer I flew a J3 Cub yeah. all summer, it's like this is what you do in a Cub, right? You yeah. fly patterns of 500 feet. Well, you do. Circular approaches. Well, and then I got my seaplane rating this summer, and that yeah. was one of the things that, that my instructor taught me was, hey, look outside the airplane. Yeah. And fly the plane, and feel the plane. Yeah, I think I, we were talking basically, Ian, about a lot of folks who are not feeling the aircraft through the seat of their pants uh, or whatnot, and you know they're going by the book. Yeah, but sometimes you really have to use all of your senses. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'd say all the time you need to use your senses. Yeah, and uh, and make sure that you're doing the right thing at the right moment. So this That's will true. keep folks tuned in. And paying attention a little bit, a little bit less workload, perhaps. I'm not against it at all, so don't get me wrong, even though we're doing a little dogfight with it. <laughs> now, that, I did mention that one thing at an uncontrolled field that might be a concern to some people. Mm-hmm. But now, what about if you've got a plane that has retractable gear and you've got a lot of stuff going on all at once? Yeah. Like, when would you slow that aircraft down, drop that gear? So, as I understand it, you know, I didn't write the study, as I understand it, the deal is you get completely configured before you even start turning. So, you know, were you taught where it's like 152, it's like, I've, I still, I teach my students this. Uh-huh. It's like, you know, it's one of these things we just teach each other and we just keep going generation by generation. But we did a beam the numbers, carb heat on if you have it, yep. power to 1500, 10 degrees of flaps, Got it. Yeah. And, you know, and basically maintain altitude to slow down a little bit, lower the nose, start descending 500 feet a minute. Right. Is that kind of how you do it? That is. Base well, turn, I, I, 10 more degrees of flaps, final 10 more degrees. I learned right? in 172, but basically the same thing, yes. Yeah, yeah. So the deal with this is, though, whereas all those flap changes in the increment else, instead of being in increments. Yeah, it's all at once. I gotcha. So uh, beam the numbers or whatever point. Yeah. Um, it's like pull the power back, add the flaps, wait for it to slow down a little bit, bring the nose down, start the turn. That really makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Because it seems to me that you're going to get to that landing speed a little bit quicker. Yeah. Because you've got more drag. And you're going to descend, and you don't forget to put the next notch of flaps in. Yeah, like, right. Like or forget I've to done be, before. put the gear down. Right. right. Or yeah. forget to put the gear down yeah. like people have done before. Right. Yeah. yeah so you don't even lot, have to think about it. It's all done. Now, a lot, a lot of times, uh, folks with folks with retractable gear aircraft that might be listening to us, they might already have their gear down when they're flying uh, over flying the field if it's an yeah. uncontrolled field, or you know, at some distance or their normal routine. Now, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we're asking them to alter that part of the routine. Correct. But uh, I do appreciate the fact that flaps, and if you have a you have a you know constant speed prop, you're going to be putting prop full forward, make sure mm-hmm. you're rich and gumps check all that stuff. Yeah. So now the one yin of that yang again yeah. will be you know in a, in a retractable gear aircraft, you usually have multiple times to say that little saying to yourself, yeah. gumps check. It's true. And so you would have to, I suppose, think a little bit about that because I know people have certain callouts on base versus final. Yeah. And I. I probably wouldn't want to do those calls while I'm in the middle of the, you know, sort of the, the top of that circle, yeah. you know, the, the old base. But I guess maybe once you're reestablished on final, maybe you do a second call. So it's like gear down. So gear down now, it's like you put the gear down, you put your, you keep your hand on the gear handle until exactly. you get the greens, right? Okay. So you're doing that on downwind. Let's say you take your hand off, you start your descent. And, and again, as I understand it, it's like you start at a higher airspeed, just like we do now, and then right. gradually slow down through the turn so that you're rolling out about on that final key speed. I guess right there again, 
you're like, okay, on final, uh-huh. gears down. Yeah. You know, call it out one more time. Yeah, right. Exactly. It doesn't hurt to call it out yeah. one more time. It doesn't hurt to triple check. Yeah, and right there, if you've flown it well, it's like you shouldn't have to be making any power changes or anything else. So you know, if it works for the military, it ought to work for us. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So here's my big question about it. Okay. Frederick, it's a towered field. It is, but it's a busy place. Uh-huh. On the weekend, uh, you know, let's say you're you're number four. For the runway, right. what do you do then? They're because they like to sequence us. Yeah, exactly. And I and maybe not here, but in Atlanta at PDK where I learned, I have heard controllers there ask me to do a three sixty. Yeah, yeah. You know, out there on yep. an extended, you know, final. Yeah, which is not a. I don't think it's a great idea either. Yeah. But uh, you know, low and slow and turning. You yeah. know, and then you're still far away. Yeah. But um, yeah, maybe in that case we would have we. Let's see what the study says. Yeah. You know, there's got to be a little give and take with that. Yeah. And we want to work with the controllers as well. And you want to, you know, get traffic managed as well, too. Yeah. Because it's all about separation and safety. But yeah. maybe uh, this would be a good way to get going, get thinking about it, you know. Of course, yeah. a lot of the handbooks will have to get rewritten. I know. That's the thing. You make the change. that has got to be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's all interesting. At, all at once. Because I guess my thing with the, the military is that, I, I, and I don't really know, but my assumption is that because they control the traffic at their landing spots, yeah. whether it's on a ship or a base or whatever, it's like they know they're not going to have five people banging right. the pattern at one time. They know who's coming and when. Yeah, they and come it, in as a flight of two or whatever. It's exactly. like they do an overhead. You know, it's all time perfectly. I I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't a military pilot, but that's my sense of how it works there. I think it's worth discussing. Yeah. Definitely. Anything that could help safety out, I don't, I don't see why we wouldn't want to at least discuss it. Yeah. So I'm really curious about it because it, just in concept of that, you know, continuous turn, I love it. Um, I like, like that. Like I said, too. I used to do it. In the in the cub, I, I like it, it too. Yeah, you know, there's been some comments in other sites that have referred to the UND and Air Safety Institute study, and and I think that it's it's a robust discussion, and I yeah. think that we should continue. Yeah, I agree. All right, so uh, our next story, number four story, we uh, we just ran this one online. This is uh, getting into a little bit of the kind of the behind the scenes on what happens with some of these FAA contracts and services. Uh-huh. But I think this one's important. You know, Lidos now runs flight service. Lidos is handling it, although the service hasn't changed. Yeah, that's just right. Just the name has changed. Yeah, that's right. And that, that occurred, I want to say... In October. Yeah, a couple months ago. Yeah. That's right. I okay. remember because it changed like over a weekend and I called like on Monday and it says Lidos. October service. 15th or something. Yeah, can I uh-huh. help you? And I'm thinking, Lidos, like did I call Who's the that? wrong number? You know, right. <laughs> forgot. I don't know if folks remember a couple of years ago, Lockheed, you know, um, the FAA stopped providing flight service in the in the lower 48 and gave that to a private contractor who at the time was Lockheed. Now it's Lidos. Lockheed Martin. Yep. So the deal is that they're looking, that contract's going to come up for renewal. Mm-hmm. And the FAA also had... The DUAT, you know, direct user access terminal system. So the plan, as I think it reads, is that basically those two contracts, so flight service, DUATs, Uh will become one. Ah. And that basically all of those services that we get as GA pilots will be provided by the same company. To be Lidos or another... I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Well, we don't know. <laughs> okay. We don't know. But Lidos has it now. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because I, wrote, I actually read a little brief story about that when it, when it was happening. Yeah. And they are a big information company, too. That's what, another thing for folks to remember. That yeah. That this is their specialty. That's right. Yeah, they do. They're a service uh, company. And then we had Rune Duke, our, our airspace uh, manager, was key in all this, you know, looking out for general aviation and uh, and provided a lot of recommendations mm-hmm. to keep this rolling in the right direction too. Yeah, and uh, AOPA, I know we've worked with a few 
organizations, including the FAA, Riddle, and some others to try and analyze how GA pilots are using these services uh-huh. today, maybe what we're missing, um, that sort of thing. And so obviously our focus, I mean, the company matters um, because obviously we want to make sure that uh, that it's a you know company able to provide the service over a long period. Absolutely. Uh, but what's most important is really what are the services? What's guaranteed in that contract? Well, we like the, I mean... It's great and it's important and you must have a full briefing. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the regs. Yeah. And uh, beyond that, we have a lot of other information sources available to us now that we might not have had even five years ago. Yeah. So once we're getting that that initial briefing, we might already have looked online. We might have looked at the Weather Channel for the overall picture. We might have looked at ForeFlight or yeah. Garmin Pilot or the AOPA Flight Planner app to get a little bit more handle on the weather. Yep. And then we go into that for that for that really thorough briefing. Yeah. yeah. And we want to and that duets thing that, that I thought, man, when I got my license, my pilot certificate, yeah. that duets thing, I thought it was cooler than heck. Yeah. It's yeah. a great service. Yeah. It really is. I mean, you look at what uh, people have to do in other countries to get weather like that. It's, oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. So um I guess the deal is that we, we've made formal requests with the FAA. You know, we were on these working groups and tried to advise on what services are going to be needed in the a contracts. Lot of, a lot of our members might not be aware of that, or our podcast listeners might not be aware of just how hard these folks work yeah. to make, make sure that GA is up front. Yeah, yep. yeah. and it's all behind the scenes. Right. Um, and so I, I guess the deal is that uh, we've asked specifically for the fact that the, these services will be provided in the future via the same way they are now, which is you can call... You can get them on the web or yeah. by radio. Yeah. And uh, and that they'll have pre-flight, which they offer now, obviously. Pre-flight, of course. In-flight. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, flight service, you call them on the radio, that sort of thing. Right. And then flight data services. There you go. So, so that's the, the trifecta. And uh, keeping that in, in order, making sure that the communication channels are open yeah. and provide that same good service that we have come to expect. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the next story, um, another good development in the world of uh, the FAA and cost and all that kind of stuff is these lower cost STCs. Wow, I am impressed with uh, with this next story, Ian. You know, anything that could help lower the cost of aviation is a good thing. Anything that helps increase safety yeah. is a good thing. And so Trio Avionics trying to bring this non-technical standard order together for Cessna 172s and 182s is pretty interesting. They have uh, basically a lower cost autopilot that would work with those aircraft. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't this like following along behind this whole FAA movement to be a little more open and a little bit more in touch with GA pilots? Yeah, well, I think, you know, (laughs) there is a certain irony that it's like the FAA was actually, you know, the, the organization that is chartered to um, in, ensure the flying, the, the safety of the flying public uh-huh. really had uh, decreased safety by keeping some of the stuff out of the cockpit. They closed the door to a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. But now that that's really completely changed. That door was open about a year ago. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. This is, this is continues on that track. Dynon and Garmin had earlier, um, you know, cracked some of this, this uh, door open. In fact, I think we had a story this summer following up on uh, air venture, where there was a really neat little autopilot device that was uh, coming to market. Yep. And I know Dynon has been a leader in experimental home-built avionics for quite a, a while. And then, of course, they were able to get some of their get some of their items uh, you know, certified for production planes, I guess. Yeah. Legacy aircraft. Yeah. And bringing a whole new level of safety to the cockpit for us. Yeah. So 
you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but the deal between that TSO, non-TSO is, okay. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars of development for these guys. It's a lot of R&D and it's yeah. a lot of money that the that the developers have to spend out of their own pocket hoping yeah. that They're they'll be blessed sales. by getting that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can buy today, you can buy the same units from Garmin, um, TSO, non-TSO, and you're talking a huge price difference. Yeah. For the same unit. It's just significant. Be, yeah, just because of that development cost that's sunk into it. Yeah. That Dynon D10A, that digital attitude yeah. indicator, I mean, that was revolutionary when they came out with it. And they keep upgrading that and making it a little bit better, making it more available. And then the Garmin G5, that yeah. was on that's on our um our sweepstakes plane. Yep. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, we, we got on board early with Garmin and uh, we're working to go through that STC path, um, help them with FAA on that and yeah, it's um, God, it's an amazing piece that of helps. equipment. That helps. Yeah. And then True Track Autopilots, that's something the Home Build Experimental Group has had for a while. Yeah. So these are several different manufacturers that have really stuck their neck out to begin with and uh, hoping that there'll be a little bit of a trickle-down effect on yeah. us and on legacy aircraft and on some of these avionics that, that are really benefits uh, to safety. Yeah, I mean, we were talking uh, before we started here that this trio, this one that we have the story up now, another uh, autopilot essentially that's going to go down this uh, non-TSO route huh? that at least the experimental version is 3000 bucks. That is not too bad. Yeah. For something of that of, of that caliber. Yeah. Now as an aircraft as a former aircraft owner myself, <laughs> I would like to caution our podcast listeners <laughs> The three thousand dollars is a nice entry fee. Yeah, it does, and you know, I figured when I was owning, I owned a Mooney. Actually, I had two Moonies at Aircoop, and I was partners uh, in a one seventy two RG. But mm. whatever you put in, I figured budget about fifty percent of that for the installation costs and any other upgrades you might need at that time. Mm. But still, if you're looking at three grand, let's say forty five hundred, five thousand dollars for a full function autopilot. I think that is pretty affordable in today's marketplace, yeah. really. Yeah, so we'll have to wait and see exactly what, you know, what they're going to charge for it um, for that version because the the G five, for example, has a slightly different price point, but that's because it's right. it's actually a little bit of a different unit, different capabilities. Yeah, it does have it. Um, so the uh, we'll we'll see what it's going to end up being installation wise on this uh, trio, but really it is it is incredibly exciting. And yeah, and I figured you know I figured anything to help, like we said, safety. That's good. Move us forward. Yeah. It's nice to have an autopilot. Uh, you know, oh, man. In instrument conditions is a great a great thing to have. And yeah. you can concentrate a little bit more. You're going to be just that much you know, safer. And we have a lot at our fingertips now. We have tablets. We have ADSB. We have yeah. weather. We have yeah. traffic. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, when you look in the cockpit of a GA aircraft, it's phenomenal yeah. what's happened in the past 10 years. It is. And could you imagine just, you know, you look through the ads now. For like warriors and skyhawks and all that, and it's like you'll find a few here and there that might have old autopilots or yeah. people have upgraded them if they really want to spend the money. Could you imagine like most of them? You look through and it's like, yeah, I got an autopilot. That's yeah, so I've cool. Got a digital attitude It'd indicator. Be awesome. I mean, that is it's really it's phenomenal. My Mooney had this uh, thing called PC Pilot Controlled Assist. It was yeah. like this pneumatic <laughs> yeah. wing leveler. But you know what? The thing worked. That's amazing. And I wonder if you know something like the, this STC would even uh, the, this particular uh, autopilot. I wonder if something like that would even work. And in, in, you know, eventually one day the trio would maybe work in a Mooney. Yeah, there are a lot of those that are out there. Yeah, there are a lot of planes already that Why that not? have autopilots that would actually benefit 
by this device when you're trying to upgrade and get something that's a you know a little bit more robust. Yeah, more modern. Right. What uh, what model Mooney did you have? I had an M20C for a number oh, of years. We yeah. retractable gear, manual Johnson yeah. bar is really cool. Those are great. And I had an M20F, so it was yeah. almost the same version, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit a little bit different, a little bit longer, but uh, very interesting aircraft. Yeah. And again, there are a lot of those in the Legacy fleet. You yeah. see them around. They're very distinctive because of that, you know, sort of backwards-looking tail. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, they're they're neat aircraft, and uh, and you know, we could have a whole another podcast on this. But that company, Mooney, has actually done some really cool stuff lately. They've got a new model with doors on both sides of the cockpit, yeah. and so. But there are a lot of legacy aircraft out there that would benefit by this technology, the Mooney included. And uh, but you know, 172s and 182s. Far more of them, and uh, we'll yeah. see what happens after yeah, this get gets started rolling. with those. And yeah, yeah, yeah move on down the line. So great. Okay, uh, well, moving on. It's it's the holidays. It is. Um, we're now we're just past Thanksgiving. Um, oh. I feel like I just ate and uh, you ate going. for a whole weekend. Yeah, that's right. And so, what's next? So people go and they usually get like a holiday Christmas tree. Yeah, sure. So we have a really cool story that uh, I was lucky enough to to be able to go and and check on. There um, are helicopter pilots out in Oregon that are using aerial harvesting technology to bring noble fir Christmas trees to your living room. <laughs> it is so cool. Yeah, this is a really neat story. I, well, I certainly had no idea that helicopters were harvesting Christmas trees. So how, how does it work? Well, I'll tell you what. The way that I found out about it, and I'm just going to back up a little bit. There was some airspace issues out in Salem, Oregon, about a year ago, which uh, AOPA actually helped fix, for lack of a better word. But the, um, the aerial harvesters uh, in Oregon are used to flying in terrible conditions. It's snow, sleet, fog. This is normal for them. And when there was oh a little gosh. bit of an of airspace increase in the Class Delta area there in Salem, it really affected some of the operations. I didn't understand it. Hmm. Well, here's the deal. Noble fir Christmas trees are highly in demand. Why? Do you know? Uh, uh, no. Put you on the spot, Ian. Sorry, <laughs> I so have noble, no idea. <laughs> so, Ian, noble firs uh, hold on to their needles longer than, oh. than any other Wait. fir tree. Can we just stop right here? I yeah. have a confession to make. Okay. I went artificial a couple of years oh, ago. you did? I did. Okay, well. There, so so <laughs> I'm, I'm out of the live Christmas tree business. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a benefit for that. But uh, but Bob Schaefer, the general manager at Noble yeah. Farms, uh, would tell you that um, that their operations, actually, they, re, they harvest 500,000 uh, Noble fir and Douglas fir trees. They wow. re, replant 600,000 trees. Oh, my gosh. So he would tell you that um, really environmentally, it's probably a little bit better to get a, a natural tree than mm-hmm. a, a plastic. I'm tree. sure he would. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so this aerial ballet. If you have not seen this, I, I urge our podcast listeners to uh, to look online and look at Paul Harrop's awesome video from uh, ALTW, and um, it shows that these helicopter pilots uh, will take these trees and they um, they're bundled on the ground. They're cut on the ground by ground. Okay. They're bundled up in this unique way of doing business where they net them together. They net about a dozen trees together. Oh, and wow. and then a helicopter pilot swings out over the trees, lowers a hook to the hooker on the ground. Okay. The hooker hooks the bundle, and then the pilot uh, picks up this 600-pound bundle of trees jet using a jet ranger or some okay. other types of helicopters cool. and slings them into a nearby truck that's called a tub. Oh, so wow. so the chopper snags the the trees from the hooker, yeah. slings them into a tub, 
they take them down a hill and put them into a like a depot area into what's called pigs. <laughs> the pigs are piggyback trailers. <laughs> and then uh, the bottom line is that uh, Bob Schaefer and his crew can get a tree from Noble Mountain to the doorstep of someone in California in about 48 hours. Oh, wow. And they go all the way to west. Uh, that, I'm sorry. They go all the way east uh, to the Mississippi River oh. and in about five days. Wow. Home Depot stores, Walmart stores, those are those where you can get these trees. And it's the same price as you would get uh, anywhere else. It's the, the aerial harvesting does not add uh, that much to the cost of a tree. He figures it's about less than a buck a tree. Wow. Which is good. And so uh, about every 20 seconds, a load of 600 pounds is snatched from the ground, flown through the air in this aerial ballet, and dropped into one of these tubs. 20 seconds. Every 20 seconds. It's so, a, wow. So this isn't like they're coming over, they hover, they wait for the guy to hook it, they pick it up, they move. They. I mean, no. you're talking like... In fact, Ty, the pilot that we spoke to, Ty uh, Burlingham, said yeah. that that it's uh, it's really a rhythm thing. Mm. And he you know he, he said it's more like a dance. And, of course, he said he wasn't that good of a dancer. <laughs> and he was a, first, he was a rookie pilot. So every okay. year they bring a new pilot on board, and Ty was learning the ropes. I guess he was doing the Texas two-step while some of the, some of the others could do a waltz. Yeah. You know? yeah. But nonetheless, um, he said that, uh, and you're a helicopter pilot, so you could probably understand this more than I could, that he said that he used the torque of the helicopter to do a torque turn. Oh, wow. So the, the helicopter doesn't really ever stop. It kind of goes, it's like a pendulum, and it's releasing a load and then going back for another load and then going back, you know, and releasing it and wow. going back and forth and back like a pendulum. Wow. So it's really an interesting phenomenon. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, we were we were very impressed with the operation there. And they're doing this for like a couple hours at a shift, I guess, the helicopter pilots. In fact, they do a seven-day-a-week uh, harvest starting on November 1st every year. I mean, who would know? Yeah, you know? right. And it, and it lasts for about six weeks. And they go seven days a week, uh, sun up to sundown, like we said, rain, sleet, snow, or fog. They're, they're out there even when the mailman's not out there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and they, they get these, these trees to market. And they, the whole idea is to pick them when they're the freshest yeah. and get them to consumers when they are at their most fragrant. Hmm. And so it's a really neat operation. This is something that wow. these guys started in 1976. Oh, cool. And when the hustle and the bump were real popular dances. <laughs> So they've been doing the dance for like 40 years. Wow. But uh, it was so revolutionary at the time that all three major TV networks of the time yeah. came out to do live shows from there. Hmm. In uh, Salem, Oregon, the Pacific Northwest. I love to fly, um, and so I'd rather be in the helicopter. But I got to give credit here to the hooker because that, yeah. that sounds like a not only a dangerous job, but a e skilled job. Extremely dangerous and very skilled. In fact, yeah. Ty said that a good hooker could make a bad helicopter pilot look good. Yeah, right. Like, I can <laughs> so, imagine them just reaching out and grabbing the rope and, you know, hooking it all in one motion, and, like, off he goes. Yeah, it looked real dangerous. And I'll tell you what else was dangerous. Me being underneath them photographing that operation <laughs> on the ground, that was crazy. But uh, but it's really, really a cool thing. And it's, uh, you know, one of the things that you would never think about for general aviation, this is yeah. another thing that we do, that our podcast listeners will go, wow, man, I had no idea that helicopters were used in that way. Yeah, uh, Very wow. interesting way to do aerial farming. Huh. So uh, um, 
Why don't they just use a crane? Okay, great idea. I mean, great question, and a lot of people did ask that. Yeah. So the the land right there is so steep that a crane would topple over. Oh. So that's the first part. Of oh, it. wow. Okay. Some of the land is at uh, like a 60-degree slope. Whoa. And that, that was actually an excellent question that you asked, Ian. See, um, they don't just want to, like, kick the trees down the mountain and have them, like, roll into the— <laughs> One of the trees rolled off did one it? of these tubs, yeah. and, and this guy, Bob, the general manager, who was so nice to us, he picked the tree up and cradled it like it was his baby. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, put it back, put it back in another truck. But that's how they consider that you know their product. They're really very proud of that. Wow. It brings in a hundred million dollars to Oregon. Whoa! Yeah, more than a hundred million bucks. Whoa. So it's a significant wow. operation. Five hundred thousand trees. Yeah, and that's, that's just amazing. from this one farm. Now yeah. this is the largest contiguous tree farm. Uh, in the world, hmm. but uh, there are several other tree farms out there. Then the the noble firs are known, like I said, they hold their leaves that needles the longest. Hmm. They're real fragrant. Douglas fir is a natural growing tree out there. They have other fir trees as well. There's a grand hmm. fir, and there's one called a Nordman fir, which is I've never heard of that. No, me either. And it had come from overseas. They're trying to build a market for that. It has thicker, stouter needles, if you will. Hmm. Uh, but just very interesting. And some people demand that kind of a different leaf. Really, there's way more tree info than yeah, I seriously. ever knew. Wow. But uh, yeah, do you, do you pick out a specific tree when you go to what? Do you do the cut down thing, or you go to like Home Depot? Uh, no, we'll go to a uh, retailer like Home Depot. Yeah. And, uh, or actually, um, we do. We, we, we go to the like, local Boy Scouts and stuff like that. Oh, okay. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, when you're cruising by the Home Depot, you're cruising yeah. by Walmart, a lot of these trees are coming from Noble Farms, and they're using helicopters wow. to deliver them to your living room. Huh. Fascinating. Very cool stuff. Yeah, that is cool. Great. So to segue into that, you had this really cool idea, something fun we could talk about. Uh, you know, like I said, we just passed Thanksgiving. We're coming up into the holiday season, um, and we thought, well, you know, we probably did a lot of around the table, uh, a lot of talk about, you know, what we're thankful for, yeah. and you know, who we love, and, sure. and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, we love flying, uh, we love aviation, and there's lots to be thankful for there. Agreed. And I know I'm going to catch you off guard on this, Ian. I'm going to tell you right off the bat that I'm yeah. very, I'm very thankful to our podcast listeners, and also to you for helping initiate oh. this podcast. <laughs> program Thanks. that we, where we can talk a lot about aviation and what makes flying fun. So that's one of the first things I'd like to thank. I do want to give a, a quick nod to a person I thought came up with this idea, Furman Bisher, a sports writer in Atlanta hmm. who has passed on, but every year he had a column about what he was thankful for, whether it was a particular baseball play or yeah. football maneuver or something like that. And he <laughs> would even give a nod to like cornbread and, you know, black eyed peas, yeah. stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, very thankful to the podcast and to our listeners and we are are getting a lot of listeners commenting favorably about yeah. what we're doing so we yeah. appreciate that yeah well, thanks a lot of our listeners are going to be thankful for third class medical reform yes, yes. That's something that AOPA worked long and hard for even before I got here mm-hmm. and uh, in July that was you know that was signed into law yeah. so they're thankful for that yeah I agree what are you thankful for uh, well what I was going to say is you know working primarily on the magazine and everything else it's like I'm thankful we got a great team we did. Um, we did. And I'm thankful for the team. Uh, I was just thinking about the other day. It's like the different places that they're going and what's coming up. And I'm, I'm super pumped about that. 
I'm really thankful for what we get to do and and for what we've done this year. Proud of it. And we share so, a lot of that. We yep. share everything we can with our with our viewers, with our readers, with yep. our listeners. Yep. And and you know the photography in the AOPA pilot and flight training magazines is just stellar. Yeah. It's unbelievably good. I, I totally agree. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm going to be thankful for my new seaplane rating, which I scored in right August, on. the day before my birthday. Good for you. I'm going to join. I'm joining you in the seaplane world. <laughs> You're now more current in seaplanes than I am. Oh, for real? Yeah. Why? Well, we both have to do something with that. Now. I know. I know. But you know, it taught me so much about aviation and seat of the pants flying and really getting back to basics. And mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about that today yeah. on the circular approach to the pattern. Yeah. And uh, and looking outside the plane and knowing what's going on, it just teaches you so much. So a new rating would be something for anyone to be thankful for. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Right that's on. good. So let's see, what else am I thankful for? I, you know, I'm thankful for, let's call it new opportunities. Right. You know, there's lots of stuff that has come up this year that I, I just think, whether it's the, uh, the SDCs, so mm-hmm. people are getting uh, cheaper stuff, um, or new stuff that people are doing. Like we've got a guy on staff who, uh, who got his drone certificate, his first pilot certificate. That's awesome. Uh, and he's doing lots of fun stuff with it and is jazzed about it. And so, yeah, I, I'd say that kind of stuff. I feel like lots of lots of new stuff coming up this year. Well, I'm going to be thankful for new regulations covering that drone use and, you know, 18,000 certified non-hobby pilots as of November 3rd. Yeah. That's a lot of people it is. to add to aviation. Yeah. And let's face it, it's all good. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a good thing. Very good. What else you got? I just read something the other day, actually, and I'm really thankful for this. It's about, and I don't know how public the details are, so I, I won't go into a lot of it, but um, the FAA's compliance philosophy. Okay. Their new one where, you know, it's like they're not going to throw the book at you the yeah, first time. Yeah, I was, was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. It's a total success. I like that. Instead of, you know, the first time you have any sort of problem, you get 30-day suspension, right. and it's like, and you stop flying and everything else. No, it's more like go up, the inspector, they have a conversation with you. Um, Find out what happened, let's fix it. Yeah. Let's go back to school. Yeah. They talk for a little bit on the ground. It's like like you're done. That was on my list. Yep. So that's a good thing to be thankful for. Yeah. That whole attitude. Really, you can you can take that yes. one step further and be thankful for this a little bit more of the door opening, as we mentioned early in the podcast, to get in some of the newer avionics and angle of attack indicators and yeah. you know the tablets that you can now mount in your cockpit because anything that'll help safety yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, I'm going to be thankful for one more thing. And I was a I was a member of this uh, Rusty Pilots Society. Yeah, so I'm going to be thankful for AOPA's own Rusty Pilots program which has been super successful. Hmm. 43% of the folks who went to through 43% of the pilots who went through the Rusty Pilots program last year yeah. are now back in the air. Wow. That's a key thing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And that that really got me going and you know yeah. this Rusty Pilots program we have it at fly-ins and um, we also have that available for uh, airports mm-hmm. around the country. Mm-hmm. You know, local airport uh, personnel or people who are instructors can have a little Rusty Pilots program. And really, the new program is a lot of fun. It's yeah. a very practical way of learning how, um, how to deal with airspace and get you know a couple of the regs that might have changed for folks yeah. who hadn't been flying in a while. Yeah. But yeah, very happy and thankful for the Rusty Pilots program. It's really a good thing. Yeah, that's cool. Chris Mosier, I think... Uh, Wrote that uh, that new one, and he's he's the man. So that's that's awesome. He's a great instructor and a former educator. Yep, and yep. you can tell the program is fun. Yeah, that's cool. So Rusty Pilots, right, is part of You Can Fly. Yeah, um, we have we've talked just a little bit about You Can Fly so oh, far right, on the right, podcast. Right. 
Um, you can fly. It's a collection of programs aimed at stopping the decline in the pilot population, uh-huh. basically strengthening and improving the pilot population. Right. Rusty Pilots is one of them. Flying Clubs is another. Flying Clubs is another. High School Initiative is another. Huge. Just came off a big high school initiative, high school symposium yep. out in Seattle. That yeah, was awesome. Which we talked about a couple it weeks was ago. huge. Yeah. Yep. Getting STEM programs into uh, high schools and you know having folks learn a little bit more about aviation in a fun way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, flight training is the last. And so we've yep. been doing those flight training excellence awards for a while now. Oh, yeah. That's right. You, yeah, yep. yeah you, yep. did the last, you did the last one at Redbird. Yep. That's right. And um, so that's part of the program. And uh-huh. all of that, you can fly. Katie Pribble is, runs that program. Right. And uh, it just so happens with the transition of all transitions that oh. she is our guest this week. Oh, man. <laughs> Katie's going to talk to us about You Can Fly initiatives. Yeah. That so, is hip. Yeah. I love um, it. So, you know, like I said, we haven't talked a lot about it. It's um, There's a feature in the December issue of Pilot. Uh-huh. You guys are having ongoing stories online. Right. Um, there's been video. But this kind of lays it all out. So Katie's going to tell us kind of soup to nuts, A to Z, whatever cliche you want to use, exactly what You Can Fly is. That's awesome. How it works, what the future looks like, all that sort of and thing. She is a very accomplished pilot herself, and she has yeah. a Cessna 180. Yeah. And in fact, her dad built her landing strip Yeah, in Montana. I know. Talk yeah. about photos. Yeah, they went out there, and <laughs> oh, man, it's gorgeous. That is pretty cool. So, um, And I think that that's going to be awesome to find out a little bit more about all the different programs that Katie's team is riding herd over. And I think that with that kind of a, of a background and, and getting Folks out there learning to fly, the high school initiative, flight schools, rusty pilots. It's like, it's a nice transition. It's a nice, nice way to recognize what we're doing to get people back in the air. So, Katie, the obvious question is, what is You Can Fly? The You Can Fly program is a really targeted and directed set of initiatives aimed at rebuilding our pilot community. I think most of our members are aware and our industry is aware that the pilot population has been declining over the last several decades. And these initiatives are designed on rebuilding that pilot population over time. It's not going to happen overnight. We don't believe there's a single silver bullet. There's not one initiative that's going to turn this whole thing around. But the initiatives that we do have are targeted and directed at different points in a pilot's life cycle. And I really believe that uh, they are going to move the needle. They already are. The programs that we have in place that we're measuring today are really starting to make a difference. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm excited to really start talking about these initiatives and getting the membership excited about them. In the past, maybe we've heard of um, Be a Pilot or you know, different Discover Aviation things where it's like getting people to the airport, let's say, and, and maybe it stops there. So how, how is You Can Fly different than that? Well, like I said, You Can Fly initiatives are aimed at different points in a pilot's life cycle. So we're starting young with the high school age, uh, we're moving through flight training and the people's experience or students' experience in flight training. We want to keep people active and engaged through our flying clubs initiative. And then if they happen to fall out, we're going to bring them back through Rusty Pilots. Mm-hmm. And I think the difference with the You Can Fly initiatives as opposed to other programs we've had in the past is that we are measuring them with a tremendous amount of, of rigor. And we want to make sure that the resources, the time and money that we are spending on these initiatives are truly making a difference and moving the needle. And uh, we are measuring ourselves and we are really excited to talk about the progress that we are making. If we discover some point along the line that something we're doing is not working, we're going to stop and, and um, rethink it and redirect our efforts so that we're making a difference. And we're not afraid to do that and talk about that. So some of the things that 
are now under You Can Fly are things that AOPA has been doing for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and some are new, like the, the flight training awards. That's considered a, a You Can Fly program under the flight training initiative. Yep. Um, but you mentioned a few things that maybe we haven't heard about, which is high schools. Um, and then on up through Rusty, maybe people have heard of Rusty, but they don't understand kind of yeah. where it fits under the umbrella. So, um, so talk first a little bit about high schools and maybe what's new there. Right. So our high school initiative is really aimed at putting meaningful aviation STEM education in front of high school students. We want high school students to be ready to enter college and enter an aviation program in college and be career ready. So this is not another after-school program. We're actually building curriculum that we will offer to schools, public, private, charter, whatever it may be. We're going to offer this curriculum to schools, and it's designed around aviation STEM. And it's not just flying. We want to obviously build more pilots and get more young people interested in flying. But we're building career and technical education pathways. We call them CTE pathways. We're building four um, pathways around flying and aviation, aerospace engineering, aviation technology, which is A&P, mechanics, or maybe avionics, and then UAS or drones. And so those are the four pathways that we're building curriculum around. We're working with Purdue. We're very excited. Purdue University is helping us build this curriculum. And uh, we're going to be testing it next year and getting it into schools in the fall of 2018. Hmm. We're really excited about it. And we are getting calls every single week from high schools that really want this curriculum today. So we know there is a need. And we know there is high schools that want aviation STEM education. We really feel that with this initiative and with this curriculum, we're answering a need that no other association or no other group has answered yet. And we're very proud of that. We're very excited about it. Hmm. Uh, we are holding our second symposium in November at Museum of Flight and Raysbeck High School. And uh, we'll have over 250 educators and principals um, and school administrators there learning about the curriculum and what AOPA is going to be doing uh, in this initiative, as well as bringing aviation educators together. There's not a, really a good place for aviation educators to collect ideas and, and share best practices, and that's what the symposium is aimed at, at doing. Hmm. So you, um, you know, I understand flying and I understand A&P stuff, but uh, I'm not an educator, um, you're not an educator, and one thing I'm struck by is, is your staff. Um, we have a, a great group of not only pilots on staff, um, but people who are experts in their area. So. For example, under um, the high school program, we have professional educators. That's right. I am so excited about the You Can Fly staff. And as we build these initiatives and this program, we're being very careful and thoughtful about who we're bringing on board. Cindy Hasselbring, as you mentioned, is our senior director for the high school initiative. And she is an educator. She was a 15-year high school math teacher, but also a pilot. She was an Albert Einstein fellow here in Washington, D.C., and mm. went from there, from Washington, D.C., uh, to the Maryland Department of Education, and then came to us. She's working on her instrument rating right now, but mm. she has a passion for education, a passion for flying. Uh, it's one of the best combinations I could ever imagine for someone in that role. Uh, she has a tremendous amount of energy and enthusiasm around it, and you can't help but, but want to join in when, yeah. when you're around Cindy. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. So, all right, so... We hook them in high school. Yep. Um, at some point, maybe they want to transition into flight training. Uh, what are we doing there in, in the flight training initiative? So the flight training initiative is so important. And as, as some people are probably aware, AOPA has done a lot of research around flight training. And we know that about 70 to 80% of people who take a lesson or walk into a flight school, take a first couple flights, don't finish flight training. So I think of flight training as a funnel. And we're pouring all these people into the flight training funnel, but we have all these holes in the funnel. They're not coming out the other end. 
we know that while time and money is a factor for some in flight training, the biggest contributing factor to that low completion rate is customer service. And AOPA is preparing right now to build really meaningful resources around helping schools offer better customer service. A lot of these schools um, want to do it. They may just not have the wherewithal. You know, mm -hmm. running a flight school is, is hard, mm -hmm. and we recognize that. And so we want to bring resources to those flight schools that, that want it and want to improve in that customer service area, but just may not have the means to do it themselves. They're you know, running just with a couple flight instructors and a couple airplanes and thinking about customer service and training frontline you know, um, staff on phones and that sort of thing is just not something that they're able to do. But we want to step in and help flight schools do that in a very, very meaningful way. And we're ready to put a lot of resources into that and build a really meaningful flight training network. So a lot more on that next year. Okay, all right, so let's say that we're successful there. Um, we get them through flight training, and as you know, flight training is learning about to manipulate the airplane and yep. maybe flying the system, but it's not about the community of aviation right. as much. And so we want to bring them into the community because we know right. that that keeps them there. Right. So how do we do that? Hey, we've all had those friends that have finished flight training, they look in the mirror the next day, and they're like, okay, you know, now now what? what? Yeah, I just yeah. took my private pilot check ride yesterday. Now where do I go? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And we think a great answer to that is through flying clubs. You know, flying clubs is one of the best ways to stay active in aviation and the most economical way to keep flying and own part of an airplane by sharing the costs. And it's one of the most fun because it's a built-in community. We love flying clubs. So last year we helped start 10 brand new flying clubs. This year our goal mm -hmm. is to build 20 new flying clubs. And I'm happy to say that just this week we announced our 17th brand new flying club in Texas. Oh, wow. I'm very excited about that. And for those of you who've looked at flying clubs or starting a club, it's not something that you can do overnight. There's a lot of rules and regulations around building a flying club. Not impossible, but our job at AOPA and what we are providing to flying clubs that are interested in, in getting started is the resources to help figure out how to buy laws and working through the FAA regulations, the IRS rules, and figuring out what's best for a, a club based on what their mission is. You Equity or non-equity club, and what kind of airplane is best for the members that are looking to join your club. And we provide that resource and that guidance for these clubs. And so, like I said, very excited that I, I believe we're gonna go over 20 new clubs this year, and that's that's really exciting. Yeah, that's, We also that's cool. just um, launched this year a Cessna 150 giveaway for a mm. startup club. Mm. And we had over 40 clubs qualify. And it wasn't just filling out an online form, a name and an address. We actually asked these clubs to draft up a set of bylaws, name officers, get an insurance quote, build a budget, and do the work so people really understand what it takes and what is involved in, in building a club. So one club is gonna get it, but we really look forward to working with those other clubs that may not win the airplane uh, and helping them get over that hump and find that airplane and, and get started. So really excited about flying clubs uh, and the resources that we're putting into that. Yeah, and and, and cool. the milestones we're reaching and you know the metrics that we're meeting. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, it's very hands-on work. It's, it is, yeah. Yep. yeah. So let's say we were unsuccessful at, at grabbing everybody and they and they drop out. And this is, a, I think, a until recently, a really unrealized problem in aviation where we've had hundreds of thousands of people who get certificates and for whatever reason, they, they drop out and then they just never come back. Even when whatever hurdle they had at the time is, is gone, they're just kind of gone for good. And so we're, we're hoping to kind of give them that boost they need to get back in. Yeah, we have hundreds of thousands of rescue pilots in this country. When you ask them, they say, 
oh yeah, I'm gonna be back someday. Yeah, I'm a pilot. You know, yeah. but what is that impetus that gets them back to the airport, to the flight school? We have found that our Rusty Pilot seminars, these free seminars that we've done all over the country is a really good way to do that. So last year we did about 100 seminars around the country. This year we're gonna do over 150. And next year, now that we have third class medical reform passed and that's gonna be going into effect next year, we're planning to do 300 seminars next year around the country. Wow. So seminars, uh, flight schools can request to do a seminar. We send them everything we need. It's totally free. We help them do the marketing. And uh, Rusty Pilots come and, and they sit through a three hour seminar and the seminar counts as the ground portion of their flight review. And the idea is that these Rusty Pilots are there, they're at the flight school and they walk right over and sign up for the flight training portion of the flight review. Hmm. And uh, last year, our goal was to have 25% of the people who are truly lapsed that attend our seminars finish their flight reviews, you know, do the flying and get the complete sign off. And uh, we met that goal. This year, we moved that goal up to 30%. And I'm really happy to report that 38.8% of the lapsed pilots who have attended our seminars this year are reporting back that they've completely finished their flight reviews and are back to active flying status. And that yeah. is really, really exciting. Wow. And we have good stories. Um, you know, we get we hear from members all the time that have are taken apart either and been touched by our Flying Clubs Initiative or our Rusty Pilots Initiative. One story that really strikes me about two weeks ago, we got an email from a member who had attended one of our fly-ins. At that fly-in, he went to the Rusty Pilots Seminar. He found a flight school and got current again, finished his, got a current flight review, and then joined one of our AOPA Flying Club Network Clubs. Mm. And that, he just had to write us and tell us the impact of that it had on getting him back in and getting him active again. And that is exactly what we are trying to do with the You Can Fly program. And it's working. Hmm. Now, I haven't been around as, as long as a lot of people who, you know, get jaded, but certainly, you know, some of this kind of stuff, been there, done that, seen it. How is this different? How, why do you think this is gonna be successful or maybe others have failed? I think there's a couple of reasons why I think the You Can Fly program is gonna be so successful. First of all, we're not looking at just one program to solve the whole problem. We're looking at four very different um, parts and pieces of, of where a pilot enters or exits their flying career, their flying experience. And I think by being able to catch pilots in different parts of their lives or life cycles as they might need us, I think that's really important. I think that's a really important part of it. We're not putting all our eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, I also think that the way with which we're measuring ourselves and making sure that the resources and the time and the money that we're spending on these initiatives are making a difference, I think that's also going to be a big factor. Because if we notice a trend, we are immediately going to make a change. We either stop doing it or change direction and make sure that the effort that we're spending is having a result, a positive result in rebuilding our pilot population. And we'll be measuring ourselves. I encourage our members to See us at fly-ins or at shows or, you know, call us up, email us and find out, you know, how is it working? What is it doing? What are the results? And we're going to be happy to share it with them because um, if we're not getting the results, we're going to change it until we do. So you, you mentioned the results and, and measurable. Um, we were together earlier this week for a meeting uh, that you hold every Wednesday morning. Yep. Um, you, you call it a scrum. And it reminded me a bit of a, of a sales meeting. Yeah. And it was great because the energy was such that the whole team comes together and, and you do reports. Yep. And so tell me, I guess, a little bit about how those meetings came about and, and kind of what the feel of the team is as a result and, and um, how the team interacts and, and that sort of thing. Yep, every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. we hold our mandatory scrum. All the, AO, or the You Can Fly staff 
is there and it's a stand-up meeting and we have a huge, the biggest whiteboard we can buy. We have a huge whiteboard with all the metrics with which we're measuring ourselves with each uh, initiative and then our individual projects within those initiatives. And we talk about each one and where we're at, what's been successful, where, um, where we're having difficulties and then working together to overcome those difficulties to make sure that we meet the metrics and goals that we set. It's just a great reminder every week um, that we are measuring ourselves, that this is important, and that it brings us together as a team. And it's great to see, you know, when somebody gets stuck in high school initiative, but, you know, somebody over here can help, the team works together and to get the job done. And it's working. And it's great. It's, uh, there's a lot of, um, I wouldn't say, on a way, pressure. You know, this, we feel the weight of what, what this initiative can do and needs to do in order to keep general aviation viable. And I really believe that the You Can Fly programs can do that, but with that comes a tremendous amount of responsibility. And uh, we've been given this great gift from Mark Baker and our board of trustees and so many of our donors that say, yes, we believe that these initiatives can make a difference, and now we have an incredible responsibility to go make it happen. Um, those weekly scrums are as a way to celebrate the success that we're having, but also remind ourselves that we've got a lot of work yet to do. <laughs> and it keeps us on track. You mentioned donors. You know, there's growing the pilot population. I mean, even though we've, we've sort of dabbled it in the past and obviously recognize that it's a major issue um, these days, it's not something that um, typically has been a core function of AOPA, but that's obviously changing now. In terms of funding, I mean, how are we going to work out that we still have this really major role behind advocacy and information and um, services. How does how does You Can Fly fit into that? The You Can Fly program relies a lot on AOPA's foundation. And so far this year, we raised over $2 million that will go towards mm -hmm. You Can Fly programming. And we're really excited about that. We had an anonymous donor come forward in April and say, we're willing to uh, give you a million dollars if you can raise a million dollars in 90 days. And Mark Baker and I and our foundation staff went out and met that challenge. And we actually exceeded the challenge. So yeah. this year we've raised about $2.2 .2 million towards our You Can Fly initiatives. And it's come from very generous donors who believe in uh, the You Can Fly program and uh, the initiatives that really can make a difference. They've seen the success we've had so far and the strategy and the plans that we have in the future and uh, are excited uh, about the difference that it can make. And so it's really resonated with donors but uh, we have a lot of work to do in that area. Uh, we're gonna be out uh, talking to a lot of people who have uh, strong feelings and a lot of passion for making sure we turn this industry around, that we turn the pilot population around. So donors are a really important part of that. That's how You Can Fly is being funded. What about you personally? I mean, um, you know, you didn't come to AOPA in this role. Um, it's developed over the last couple of years as we've sort of codified the plan. Um, but now you, you take it on uh, wholeheartedly. And so tell me about what it means to you personally. I mean, you come to work every day and, and talk a little bit about the challenge and, and how you feel about that. So I started flying in high school and my goal in high school was to become an airline pilot. I went to Embry-Riddle and Prescott, had a wonderful experience there. Came out of Prescott in about 2000. The regionals were hiring, was able to go right into a CRJ 200 based at Chicago and then Washington Dulles. It was a fantastic job. It was incredible, 21 years old, you know, flying for a regional airline. <laughs> After about five years, um, I was facing a furlough, but I also felt that I really wanted to have a more direct impact. Flying was great. You have a tremendous amount of responsibility for those passengers and your crew, 
but I felt like I really wanted to make uh, a direct impact and difference. And so when I was furloughed, I took that opportunity, I was based at Washington Dulles at the time, to um, enter into the General Aviation Association world and found myself at the General Aviation Manufacturers Association for about seven years as their director of communications. Fantastic experience and then was ready for a step up in, in leadership and that's when I came to AOPA in communications. Uh, and then Mark Baker came on board and said, hey, you know, we, uh, he, he immediately identified that AOPA um, is the association to have an impact on the pilot population. And so we immediately started talking about, about how we grow that and grow that community. And uh, the communications role, like you mentioned, has evolved into to You Can Fly program. I am so passionate and I believe so strongly that AOPA can and needs to turn the pilot population around. And I think about it day and night. And the staff that we have on board, the AOPA employees, our donors, our board of trustees, Mark Baker, everybody is, is equally excited about it. And that fuels us. It fuels us every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just could not be more passionate or have more conviction that AOPA can turn this around and, uh, and has to turn it around. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm afraid for the general aviation industry if we aren't successful. And uh, I believe we can be. And I will work every day until we turn, we turn the trend. One of the ways that I know that you guys accomplish this is it's a little bit different model for AOPA. We've got not only people here at headquarters where we traditionally operate from, but you have a field staff as well um, called the ambassadors, and uh, they have some cool tools. And so describe for me, if you would, kind of who they are, what they do, um, and then over the next couple of years, where you see them going and then also the headquarters. Absolutely. Yeah, we have five full-time ambassadors flying yellow reimagined, 152s around the country. Hmm. These are ambassadors who are in the field that are working directly with flight school and flying clubs uh, to make sure that the resources that we have available um, are in their hands. Um, so we have ambassadors working with flying clubs and formation and getting them started and getting them that ball across the finish line for flying clubs. And they're working with flight schools directly on rusty pilots initiatives and, and other flight training programs that we have up and coming. Uh, our ambassadors are in Florida, Southern California, Texas, uh, the Great Lakes region, and soon-to-be New York State. So if you see a yellow 152 flying in any of those areas, make sure you stop and say hi to one of our ambassadors. They are there for, for our members and, and for the flying clubs and flight schools out there who need the resources and, uh, and our help in making a difference at their airports or their flight school or their communities. The ambassadors are a really important part of our success in You Can Fly. Uh, but, you know, we also have our headquarters staff here who are working day in and day out on building those resources for the ambassadors to use in the field. I'm really excited uh, about opening up the You Can Fly Academy here at Frederick next year. Uh, it'll be a destination and a source. So a destination for people to come and uh, be educated and trained in certain areas. For example, we'll be doing uh, professional development for teachers around the high school aviation STEM curriculum. Uh, we'll do Rusty Pilots programs here. Uh, bring flight schools in and help them train them on our uh, our resources around customer service and retail sales and um, some business accounting basics. All those tools we're going to be building for flight schools. They can come here and learn those as well. Um, our ASI, our safety courses will be taught here as well. So be a lot of chances for face-to-face -face learning and education here at the You Can Fly Academy. But it also is going to be a source. So we'll have a state-of-the-art studio where we'll be doing online training, podcasts, webinars. So if schools or people can't come to us, we can come to them. 
And uh, so, like I said, it'll be a destination and a source, and we'll be opening the You Can Fly Academy here at Frederick Airport, right next to our headquarters in 2017. All right, Katie, well, thank you. It sounds like you're going to be the busiest woman in aviation. So uh, if you want to learn more, go to youcanfly.aopa.org. Or look for uh, regular coverage on our website or in the magazines where we'll be uh, seeing all those metrics and how you're doing. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. David, there's a ton of stuff to be excited about there, I think, with You Can Fly. I mean, you are you know, firsthand being a rusty pilot, how it important really that stuff is. It really helped get me back in the air, Ian. I yeah. couldn't have done it without Katie's team. Not yeah. at all. Yeah, and I think with Third Class Medical coming up, it's going to be even more important. Yeah. And so uh, it's really exciting, and I think and that program's in capable hands, and it's, it's, it's cool to be a part of something that I think is going to benefit the whole industry. And Got to feel good about that. We got nowhere to go but up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I like it. (laughs) All right. So I I guess that's it for this week. Um, Austin Hansen is our editor. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. You can find us on aopa.org slash hangertalk. Email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. We're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time, David. Thanks, Ian. See you then. (laughs) 